Good morning, Kettlebrook. My name is Noelle, and blessed to be up here with this music team as we start off our Sunday together. If you'll stand with me, we're going to sing a song about the goodness of our God. fails me all my days I've been held in your hands from the moment that I wake up until I lay my head I will sing of the goodness of God and Welcome everyone to our gathering this morning. We here at Kettlebrook are 
a family of followers of Jesus, helping others follow Jesus. And if you're gathering with us for the first time, today we want to extend a special welcome to you. We would encourage you to fill out a Connect card, and it's out in the lobby or using the QR code on the seat back in front of you. This morning, as we continue to lead up to Resurrection Sunday, in just a few weeks, we are in a series called Not So Fast. We're trying to slow down a bit to create space for worship, for prayer, and to hear from God. And so as we continue in song this morning, I would like us to use prayer through some of Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching about worry, and he says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Matthew 6, verse 25. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Matthew 6, 31 through 33. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you humbly this morning. You are the giver of all good gifts. And we desire not only to sing of your goodness, but live our lives in light of your goodness. We confess, Father, that we so often do not live our lives in light of your goodness. We're quick to do a lot of things, but praise you is sadly very often not one of them. Forgive us for being fast to worry rather than being fast to rest in you. Forgive us for running after food and pleasure rather than running to you. Forgive us for being quick to judge and quick to speak rather than quick to listen and quick to seek understanding. Convict us, Holy Spirit, where we are running after the things of this world rather than your kingdom and where we turn away from you, Heavenly Father, who is running after us. Grant us your mercy and your heart, God, that instead of seeking to appease and gratify and satisfy our disordered desires, we would seek you first in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing this next song, um we're going to give you some time to slow down, uh, to reflect, um, to create. We've created some space within the song um, after each verse to take time. There's going to be some prayer prompts on the screen. Um, we just ask that you take that time between each verse to um, pray uh, to your, um, pray by yourself to God and just uh, uh, ask Him to speak to you in that.
Thomas Merton wrote, the world of men has forgotten the joys of silence, the peace of solitude, which is necessary to some extent for the fullness of human living. At this time, I invite you to take a seat and we're going to experience a moment of silence together that God may use it to probe the depths of your soul. Why is silence so hard for us? Do you know how long we were just silent for? One minute. 
you know how long it felt? 12, 12 minutes, right? It's definitely 12 minutes. But why is silence hard for us? Why, why are we so easily distracted? A study conducted just a few year ago, years ago revealed that the average human attention span is eight seconds. Eight seconds. So if you're wondering why you didn't hear the last sentence that I just said, it's because squirrel. Well, it's, actually, it's actually goldfish. Goldfish, okay? Goldfish have an attention span of nine seconds. We have an attention span of eight seconds. This morning as we continue on our series, Not So, Not so Fast, we're going to look at one practical reason why I believe that silence is hard for us and our attention spans are so short. I think it's because we're so fast to be entertained. We're so fast to be entertained. We have nearly infinite access to content at our fingertips. We have instantaneous access to almost any person around the world at almost any time, again, at our fingertips. We have immeasurable access to customizable experiences, purchasing, you name it. And yet, apparently, studies show that up to half of us are often bored at home or at school, while more than two-thirds of, two of us are chronically bored at work. Psychologist Dr. Sandy Mann wrote a book called The Science of Boredom, and in it she notes there are a number of explanations for our boredom. She writes this, this in fact is part of the problem. We are overstimulated. The more entertained we are, the more entertainment we need in order to feel satisfied. The more we fill our world with fast-moving, high-intensity, ever-changing simulation, the more we get used to that and the less tolerant we become of lower levels. And this morning we're going to see from Scripture that this is not a new trend. This is not something new. This has been the case for a very long time. That we have desired to be satisfied and entertained. And it's an age-old problem with the same tried and true solution. So we're going to be in Ecclesiastes this morning. Ecclesiastes is on page, I think, 472 in the Brown Bibles that you have under your chairs. I encourage you to open with me to Ecclesiastes. We're going to read the first 11 verses of chapter 2. And as you open to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, what I want to do is just set the stage for you a little bit. Ecclesiastes is a unique book in Scripture. It's one of the three uh, what we call wisdom literatures. We have Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes, is, is, it's a weird book, because what we have in this book is we have this, this teacher, someone called Kohelet. Uh, some believe it's Solomon, and there's good reasons to believe it's Solomon. Some don't believe it's Solomon. There's decent reasons to, to believe it may not be Solomon. Regardless, what we get is we get a number of chapters of the reflections of this man who's a, kind of a cynical guy. But what's really interesting about the, the book of Ecclesiastes, and actually very important, is that there's another character, if you would, in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's the author of the book. And the author of the book, most believe, is not the same person as the teacher. And the author is the one who sets up in verse 1, kind of like, hey, here's what the teacher says. And at the end of the book, the, the author is able to kind of come back around and say, here's all the things that the teacher said. Now, what do we do with that? How do we interp interpret that and bring it all together, which is really important. In chapter 2, though, we are kind of right in the, in the middle of the cynical musings of the teacher that I think are relevant for our conversation today. So we're going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to pray. Father, I pray as we read your word that you would speak to us through it. Father, open our ears to hear, our eyes to see. Um, get me out of the way, Lord. Speak to us through this. It does not return void. You promised it. And we pray in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, can you stand with me as we read God's word? All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Kohelet, the teacher, says this. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. 
I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well. The delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. This is God's word. You can have a seat. Are you feeling encouraged and inspired? Huh? Isn't that uplifting? All right, so here's what I want you to do. I just want to take a, a couple minutes and just turn and talk to someone near you and just say, hey, here's something that stuck out. As Troy read that or as I reread this, here's what sticks out to me. Just take a couple minutes and just process through what sticks out to you, and then we'll come up and dive into this together. All right. So uh, thanks for just taking a moment to process that together. <clears throat> I, I think the teacher does strike a little bit of a chord with us in this, in some way, shape, or form. And, and one of the reasons why is because I think that we could all probably acknowledge that we've maybe been there. In other words, we haven't been there. We've, 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 we believe we've arrived someplace only to find that we haven't arrived. Maybe it's a romantic relationship that we've been pursuing that eventually faded or broke our hearts and crushed us. Maybe it's the, the, the next job promotion that we thought was going to kind of satiate and satisfy us that only f- found us striving for more. Maybe it's the friendship or, or the child that we've invested so much into to only have them reject us. could be any of these things. What's the point of it? In fact, if you just skim the headings, if you just look at the, the headings of Ecclesiastes, it's just really, really encouraging. Um, toil is meaningless. Achievement's meaningless. Wealth is meaningless. Like, it's all, it's all meaningless. Just skim the headings, if you would. Wisdom, pleasure, folly. None of it matters. There's no point in any of it. I actually have a little uh, illustration of this. Uh, Stephanie has one of these diffusers. Some of you probably have one of these at your house. I'm not sure you're going to be able to see this. But what these diffusers do, you put water in there and, and magic drops. And then, no, it's like essential oils. And I think it's supposed to make you better. Or so, I don't know. So uh, this has got grapefruit in there. Anyway, I don't know if you can see the little mist that's coming out of that. But the point is, look, this guy is saying the word hevel is, is this word meaningless or vanity. It means vapor. Okay, it means vapor. And he's like, it's just chasing. Like, this is what I'm doing. I'm trying to grab this thing. I, I'm trying to grab it. I can't grab it. That's what he's, that's kind of the point that he is making in, in, in this text. Now, thankfully, again, the, t- the teacher doesn't get the last word. The author actually is able to bring this full circle for us. But I do want to engage a little bit here with the cynicism of, of the teacher here in chapter 2 around being entertained. In verse 1, more literally, the teacher says to himself, Self, let's, let's entertain yourself. 
Let's enjoy some merriment and mirth. Those are words, you know, we invite people over to our house, hey, you guys want to have some merriment and mirth? Right? I mean, like, hey, please yourself. Pleasure. Engage. Be entertained. We desire to be entertained. We seek to be entertained. This past week, or maybe the past couple weeks, right, if you have children, they were on spring break, right, if, if you have them in public schools. Tell me you didn't hear this. Come on now. I don't care if you're home, if you're home the whole week, or if you went someplace really cool. Tell me you didn't hear this. I'm so Wow. Whoa. I'm crazy. I'm so bored. Okay? Sometimes, I, I, Steph and I joke, I feel like we're cruise directors. Okay? Or like, I'm that mouse at Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> you know, like, I, I sometimes feel like that. And, and I'm, I'm just, I'm saying I'm guilty of it, okay? Feeding into this idea, hey, i got to make sure my kids are, are, are busy or enjoying themselves, right? Just creating this insatiable desire to be entertained. And in verse 1, the teacher says, look, it's meaningless. It's vanity. It's vapor. Laughter and pleasure. What does it accomplish? Apparently, only a ceaseless desire for more. Laughter and pleasure. It's never satisfied. Now, what's awesome is that the teacher is willing to experiment and report out for us. Okay, in verse 3, he says, I wanted to see what was worthwhile in our short days under the sun here. And he has the resources to try it out for us. And so he goes off in verses 4 through 8, what I'm going to call an existential bender. Okay, and he tries to like, he tries everything. He's like, I, you know, I've, I built houses for myself, gardens, planted trees everywhere, had water for all the trees. I had some slaves, some male slaves, some female slaves, slaves in my house, they can do whatever I want them to do. He's like, I even bought, I got a choir. I like a male and female singers, you know, which reminds me, those of you who are a little older, reminds me of this picture right here, Yosemite Sam, dance, pow, 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 right? Like, okay. Like, this is what he's saying. He's got that. And then it says he, got, he bought a harem, okay? And the Hebrew in here is, is kind of messy. We don't exactly know. But conservatively, it could mean, hey, I bought myself some ladies. Or, more crudely, you could say, I bought myself some breasts. Regardless, either way, either way, not ever a way I want my wife, my daughters, any of you sisters in Christ, or any woman to ever be referred to, right? You want to talk about, I mean, you talk about being entertained, again, Maximus Decimus Meridius goes into the, to the thing and he's, you know, cutting people up as a gladiator and he throws a sword at the end. He's like, are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? Right? That's how we feel and it's how I think the teacher is like, look, I've tried all this stuff. I've done all these things. I've got a harem, you name it. All the delights of the heart of man, the teacher has them and he comes to the conclusion that it's empty. That it's empty. Something that I, I think is impressive is somehow he says twice in here he maintains his wisdom in the midst of pursuing all these things. He doesn't lose himself, which is it's impressive, but he admits to the emptiness of it. In verse 10, he says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Can you imagine having the resources to do that? Can you imagine having the resources to just be like, whatever I want, my heart desire, I just do that. That's a dangerous proposition, okay? And one of the things that's beautiful about Ecclesiastes is that I think God gives us this text so that the teacher can go and do all this and show us that it's all meaningless without us having to chase after it ourselves. My, my father always says, Troy, steal with your eyes and your ears, meaning he always wanted me to learn from other people's mistakes so I wouldn't have to make them myself. And, and that's what I think we can benefit from here. But the key to understanding this whole book is at the end of the book. Again, where the author comes in and helps us interpret what's going on here in chapters uh, 1 through 11. And here's what we see at the end of the book. The author says this, not only was the teacher wise, see the teacher's not talking about self in third person, but also he imparted knowledge to the people, he pondered and searched out and said in order many proverbs, again, why some people think it's Solomon, uh, now all has been heard, the author concludes. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Everything has meaning. It's not meaningless. Everything has meaning. Sc uh, scholar and professor Dr. Tremper Longman puts it this way. Apart from God, life is meaningless. And this warning serves to undermine the tendency of, of, our, of us to create our own meaning for our lives. Wisdom, relationships, power, money, influence. 
They're all put under a microscope, and at the conclusion, it's all meaningless without God. The teacher looked life on her square in the face and concluded that life is hard, and then you die. But the second voice, the author, in essence, argues, or sorry, agrees, that this is true under the sun, but then at the very end points to what is truly important, fearing God and obeying his commandments in light of the coming judgment. Life is far from meaningless. I think what the, one of the problems is with the teacher is the teacher has a very small understanding of what life is about. Because he's like, I'm the great, I, I became the greatest in this little tiny fishbowl of mine. And he's like, it's all about me. It's so self-centered. If you look again at verses 4 and 5, in a more literal translation, you're going to see it better. I enlarged my works. I built houses for what? For who? For myself. I planted vineyards for who? Gardens and parks for who? Myself. Okay? It's almost as if the teacher is trying to recreate the Garden of Eden for himself, bring himself back into paradise for himself. In fact, this phrase, this prepositional phrase, for myself, is in these verses, 4 through 8, eight times. And, and a bunch of translations of the scriptures actually are like, well, we don't translate that on purpose because it's just really redundant. It's like, no, 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 no. That's the point. It's in there eight times for us to draw our attention to the fact that it's all about him. In fact, I don't want to get too into it, but the, the Hebrew it transliterated is el i li. It's for myself, li. You just add an e at the end. You got a lie. It's all about you. Okay? This is one of the massive lies we fall prey to all day, that I, it's about me. I need to be entertained. That's why it's so empty. One of the reasons, though, I think we like to be entertained is because we like to be part of a story. Preferably a story where, where we're the main character. Even better, a story that we're the author, where we're God, where we create our own meaning, where we create our own morality. I think that's one of the reasons why we seek to be entertained. And the author, though, concludes at the end of this whole book, he says, fear God and keep his commandments. And, and everything has meaning if we, if we have that framed out. Now, when I say to you, fear God, I know some of you, like that, you're like, Troy, that rubs me the wrong way. I don't like that. I think you should ask yourself that question, why? There's a reason why. We don't like to have to fear God. Is God some kind of a bully that I have to fear him? Am I not supposed to just love God? I don't know. Here, here's the thing. I don't think God's some kind of a bully. I think that someone who's able to create the entire universe by speaking is a little intimidating to me and perhaps worthy of me being fearful of because of the power of who God is. And we see it all the time in Scripture. Someone encounters the presence of God and they just go, boom, okay, fall down because of his presence. And yet almost every single time, God's response is this, fear not. Fear not. But I think, again, if, if we can create our own little universe where we believe we're the center of it, it's about us, we're the story, we're the, we're the main character, we're even the author, better yet. This is, this is what sin does. This is who we are as sinners. It's from the garden, this is what it was. It was like, God, we reject your story, we're going to write our own story. Okay, we reject you, God. You're not the center of it. We're the center of it. And so, again, I don't think it should be surprising to us that we're fast to be entertained because entertainment is one of the primary ways that we enter into a story. Harvard professor and psychologist Paul Harris puts it this way. The imitative capacities of our minds enable us to almost completely occupy a fictional position so that both our thoughts and feelings begin to be shaped more by the fiction than by our real-life situation. We feel that we are there in the story, an experience that psychologist Melanie Green and her colleagues call narrative transport. So narrative transport is kind of what it is. It's what it sounds like. It's that the narrative is transporting you someplace else. And then if we look at uh, Dr. Peter Stromberg, he builds on this and talks about, okay, we live in a world in which there's 3D movies, surround sound, I added VR, virtual reality, right? And computer-enhanced imagery, all sorts of technology that enable us to plunge deeper into our beloved fictions. It's like a powerful, mind-altering drug, except that it's legal <laughs> and completely safe. No wonder entertainment is so entertaining. It's legal 
and it's completely safe. And yet, I would challenge this. I don't know if it's always safe. Because I think sometimes narrative transports take us into stories that are not true. And that becomes really dangerous. About the past 10 years, there was a, a cartoon on Cartoon Network called uh, The Amazing World of Gumball. Okay? And I, I don't want to say a ton about it because I haven't seen it. Okay? So I want to just throw that out there. I was doing some processing and read about a little bit about it. Um, but the show portrays this young cat named Gumball who gets into a lot of trouble because of schemes that Gumball puts together and apparently doesn't learn his lesson in, in almost ever. His mother is the breadwinner and his father stays home and watches TV and plays video games. In one episode, though, Gumball looks up at the sky and he says, tell me, universe, what is the meaning of life? I'm going to come back and just quick time out. I hear this language increasingly about the universe. And I just, I just want to talk about it just briefly. Um, it, it deserves its whole message, but uh, I hear people talking about, okay, instead of praying to God and having God respond, now what we do is we throw our thoughts out into the universe, and maybe the universe will respond to us. And I think, he, here's why I think that's increasingly popular, because the universe has zero relationship with you, and therefore zero accountability, you're, you're not at all accountable to the universe. You just throw out your thoughts, and the universe will navigate that, Okay? When, when God, God actually has a claim on your life. There's a big difference. But I think that's why we hear, hear this increasingly. Anyway, Gumball says, tell me, universe, what's the meaning of life? And so that there's this cartoon where the planets then come and they start to sing together. And they respond, and here's what they say. I think I got a slide. Do I have a slide? Yeah, there. When you think you've got a problem and your life is full of doubt, remember in the scheme of things, your puny, little, tiny, weeny, meager, futile, worthless, gloomy, bleak, and pitiful life just doesn't count. Entertainment, it's not always safe because it's not always true. Now, if you've been paying attention, what you could do is you could press back and say, Troy, but isn't that what the teacher is saying? Yes. That is what the, the gumball and the teacher have come to the same conclusion. But thankfully, the author is able to say, mm -mm, mm -mm, that's not correct. But I think that's why we look to the narrative transport in some form of entertainment that can bring some form of meaning to our lives. Again, we want to enter into a story that has meaning. The author of Ecclesiastes is convinced there absolutely is a larger story. It is the true story. It is God's story. That everything is not meaningless. It's meaningful. Everything can be meaningful with purpose. All, of, all the things, uh, toil, trials, time, advancement, riches, any of it can be redeemed and transported into God's narrative. The age-old problem that we have the desire to be satisfied through entertainment has a tried-and-true solution, and that is recapturing the awe and wonder of God's story and engaging in God's story. That is the solution. Recapturing the wonder of God's story and engaging in the, one, in the wonder of God's story. You know, the Apostle Paul, once a guy who killed Christians, met Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus Christ. Life was wholly changed. He wrote to the church in Philippi, the followers of Jesus, and he wrote this. He wrote, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, admirable, anything that is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. There's assumptions you need to understand here that Paul says when he says whatever is true, he is making an assumption that there are things that are true and there are things that are false, that there are things that are noble and ignoble, that there are things that are right and wrong. And he says these things, these are the things that I want you to, to think about because everything has meaning. Life is not meaningless. Each and every one of you were formed and created by God uniquely. Nobody has the fingerprint that you have. Every single one of you. But only will you understand the meaning of your life when it's understood in the context of the meaning of ultimate reality in God himself. God's story. So if you find yourself being fast to be entertained, here's four things I want you to think about engaging in. One is fasting from entertainment. 
What does that look like? I don't know. I don't want to tell you what to do with that. I'm just saying, what does it look like to maybe put our phones down for a period of time, turn the TVs off, set the screens down for a time? What does that look like to fast from entertainment? Maybe it means instead of scheduling like 78 things this week in your calendar to make sure you're busy and full, that you schedule something called space. You schedule something called quiet so that you could actually be present for God or the people that you're with, or both. Maybe it means that when that, that series that you're watching is over, you don't go to another one. You say, I'm actually going to take a break from, that, from us, any series. I'm going to watch a series again for time. So that's number one. I would say fast from entertainment. Find a way. Be intentional about it. Number two, if you continue to be seeking to be entertained, here's what I ask you to do. Uh, do not passively absorb it. What I hear sometimes is people are like, yeah, I just like to go home. I like to veg out. I like to watch this just veg out. I just need you to understand, you are never just vegging out. That's not happening. Your brain is working when those messages that you're watching are coming into your brain. Whether you realize it or not, you are likely being conformed to the patterns of this world. And so I'm not saying you should never watch TV. I'm just saying that you should actively engage in it, which means that you could hit the pause button once in a while and say, what messages are being conveyed in this media form, in this series, in this show, in this book that I'm reading? What messages actively engage so that God might transform us by the renewing of our mind rather than conforming us to the patterns of this world? So fast from entertainment would be a, a recommendation. Number two, actively engage in it rather than passively absorbing it because you're not just vegging out. Number three, just quickly, be godly artists. Be godly artists. Each of you has been given a, a gift to create in one way, shape, or form. I don't know what it is. But the, the church, we desperately need to lift up and raise up our artisans because we, can, we, we should be the best artists in the world. And I, I don't mean, mean that to be prideful. I'm saying because we understand God's story, the church should have the most amazing artists because we understand the, the original artist. We know who he is. Maybe it's writing. Maybe it's art. Maybe it's creating. Uh, uh, any kind of thing. And number four, uh, recapture God's story and engage in God's story. None of you in this room, none of you watching online should, if you follow Jesus, should be like, I'm bored. You should not be. If you're bored, can you please, like, call me? Can we, can we set up an appointment? I'd love to whiteboard out with you how God's uniquely gifted you and made you. Um, Chuck, Amy, are you guys bored right now? You're not, you know why they're not bored? Because the last, because I get like 17 messages from them a day of what's going on with our Afghan families and how they're serving them. And we've got entire teams serving Afghan refugees that I guarantee seven months ago they never would have had a clue that they would be doing right now. They're living an amazing adventure right now. And we actually, Kettlebrook family, we actually want to bring more because there are more that need to be resettled. And what that takes is more people. And so if you're bored, can you call me? Because there is an adventure right here, right now. And it's not just Afghans, it's Ukraine. I mean, you, it's right here with homeless in our city. It's right here with the Hispanics in our community. It's right here. I mean, there is so many ways that we are called to engage in God's story and recapture the wonder of his story. Those are the four things. Now, thankfully, what's interesting about the book of Ecclesiastes, again, is that the author pops in verse 1. He pops in at the end. He's actually in chapter 7 as well, right in the middle. But the reason I bring that up is because what's amazing about your story is the same is true. Is the author of your story set the stage. The author of your story will come back at the end and interpret all things and make all things understood. And the, the author of your story also entered into the middle of the story. His name is Jesus Christ. If you want to talk about narrative transport, you talk about a king in heaven who left his throne and transported himself into our story so that you and I could have every single part of our life redeemed and have meaning to it. That's what Jesus Christ did so that we could take our sinful nature, our sinful desires to reject God and say, no, 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 that's not the story. He's like, 
I am the story. And I've come to redeem your stories. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you. Thank you that you have entered into, you're the author who's entered into our story. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and your spirit who you send and give to us who follow Christ so that we can understand that there is nothing. Even our worst day is completely meaningful. Even suffering, even pain is ridiculously meaningful for your sake and your glory. Father, may we never be bored because of the the wonder of your amazing story that you have written and that you are writing. Father, convict us by your spirit to not be fast to be entertained, but be fast to glorify you with every part of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. I want to have you take just a couple minutes and turn and talk with someone about uh, these questions here. So go ahead and have a conversation. Don't let anyone be alone in this. If you see someone sitting by themselves, welcome them because they're part of the family sitting here today. So let's have a conversation and, and we'll, we'll sing in a few minutes here.
I always hate to interrupt turn and talks, but I pray that your discussions, that they were blessed and that God was in them and that you're able to have some really good conversations. I know I did. So I'm going to ask everyone to stand as we continue to meditate on the goodness of our God and how worthy he is of our life and everything that we bring to him. shaking you lately? What are you building your life on? What are you living for? 
voice of love that's calling There's a chair that waits for you And a friend who understands Everything that you're going through You keep standing at a distance In the shadows of your shame There's a light of hope that's shining Won't you come and take your place? today and you understand forgiveness, that forgiveness only comes by what's called the propitiation, the substitutionary atonement, Jesus Christ taking your place, that the wrath of God against your sins is not poured out on you, but poured out on him instead of you so that you might have life with him, then we invite you to partake in this. If, if that's a foreign concept to you, we would ask that, that you would not partake at this time and instead perhaps pray that God would reveal this reality, that his story, he wrote himself into it so he could redeem it and that Jesus Christ is the redeemer. Actually, I have to grab the elements myself. Uh, there are around four tables in the, the back and the front here. And talk about not being meaningless. I was thinking this, this last few weeks I've been spending some time in Matthew, the book, the gospel of Matthew, and it just struck me. In Matthew chapter 20, um, Jesus says this. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. Can you say vineyard? Vineyard. Okay. This is right after that. He predicts his own death because he's headed to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to die. And he enters in, triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, which is next Sunday, and he cleanses the temple out. And then he tells this other parable. He tells another parable. He says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. Can we say vineyard? That's interesting. He's talking about vineyard a lot. And then he tells another parable right after that. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a, do you want to guess what it was? A vineyard. Crazy. 
And then the next parable, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Come on now. Nothing is meaningless. Jesus has got meaning behind everything. Every parable that he told. He knew where he was headed. And so because we want to be not so fast to be entertained, I want to I want to set that stage for you and just have you think about a vineyard. I want you to think about Jesus' broken body and his shed blood. I just want to sit with it for a second. I'm not going to say anything else besides take and eat when the time comes. We hold in our hands the, the, the body of Jesus Christ. Father, we bring all of ourselves, just like people who are throwing cloaks down before you as you entered into Jerusalem, we're throwing our cloaks down, we're going to throw our whole lives down, we say to bring it all to the table, bring it all to your table. Father, help us to bring our whole lives before you, we say in response. Come on in, take your place. There's no one who's turned away. All you sinners, all you saints, come right in and find your place. Come on in, take your place. There's no one who's turned away. All you sinners, all you saints, come right sisters, this, this week, can we recapture the wonder of God's story? Can we understand that because of Christ Jesus, every one of us have lives that are full of meaning? And may we live in light of and engage in God's story together. I pray this over you and with you together before the Father. And all God's people said, amen. If we can pray with you, we'd love to pray with you after the gathering up front here. Be blessed and have an amazing week as we live this out. Thanks for joining us this morning and worshiping with us virtually. We'd love for you to take a next step. Uh, maybe that's joining a group. Maybe that is serving in some way, but some way in a family of faith near you, taking a step beyond the virtual gathering. Yeah, what we read in Scripture is that the body is meant to build one another up into the fullness and maturity of Christ. And that cannot happen really alone. We don't find uh, lone wolf Christians, if you would, in the New Testament. And so we would so strongly encourage you to engage in your local faith community where you are or here in the body at Kettlebrook Church. We'd love to have you take a next step in that way. So God bless and hope to see you soon. God bless.